This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. This is for the American Enough podcast, our first live show. Um, and I applaud all of you that are here on a Sunday morning, right after I'm sure what was a very late um, and, and gin-infused night um, at South by Southwest um, and on Daylight Savings Time. Um, so really, really appreciate all of you being here. Um, I actually want to start by kind of uh, thinking through something that has been on my mind in a huge way. Um, we have up here uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana. Let's give Mayor Pete a round of applause. We have uh, Ravi Patel, who is an incredible actor, an incredibly hilarious and kind-hearted human being. He also co-produced with his sister an amazing film um, called Meet the Patels that uh, you can find on Netflix, which sort of uh, it, it actually tracks the, the trials and tribulations of growing up with South Asian parents who want you to ha- pursue marriage and love in a particular way, um, even if you're trying to find happiness in your own regard. And you, we also have Jawir Brown from the ACLU. Round of applause. And, and what's particularly been on my mind um, from this perspective is that in this moment in America, it's, it's almost an understatement to say that we're at an inflection point. We have conversations um, splintering the country, and at that, in that same moment, we have more people activated, engaged in political conversation than ever before. Um, and I want to start with the ACLU, because in many respects, um, you are the heartbeat of what is going on in terms of folks trying to push back against this administration. Um, in many other respects, though, a lot of folks might look at the American Civil Liberties Union and say that you're not fighting for them. Um, This weekend, you guys filed a lawsuit um, suing the Department of Homeland Security um, and uh, the ICE teams that are, um, you know, charged with uh, deporting families around the country, specifically because you're concerned about immigrant families being broken up and splintered. There may be some in this country that say that that is the right thing to do. There may be some in this country that agree with the president's uh, immigration approaches. And yet, at the same time, the ACLU is responsible for dozens of cases and dozens of American precedent in law, sorry, lots of precedent in law, that is foundational to our country. Roe v. Wade, Brown v. the Board of Education, Miranda rights, you have the right to remain silent, all came from actions of the ACLU. So if we're at this moment in which you are fighting on behalf of values in the Constitution, and yet many people find that some of what you're fighting for is one-sided and doesn't represent their values. How do we ensure that institutions that pursue protecting our Constitution actually fight for everybody at the same time? Um, well, thank you for having me. Good morning. That's a, quite a question to start off on. Uh, thanks for <laughs> giving me a nice, easy transition in. Um, yeah, I, I can understand how from one particular perspective, um, it may feel like the ACLU, uh, particularly now, uh, might feel like a progressive institution. Um, though I'm happy to have the opportunity to sort of dismantle that idea. Um, what really the ACLU is, what's core to our foundation, are constitutional rights. And those rights are um, inalienable to every person in the nation, irrespective of your zip code or where you're from or where you live or how much money you make.
make. And so while we may be particularly now really well known for fighting for progressive issues, I think what's less known is, you know, we've sued every president. Um, we sued Obama against torture, against drones. For as long as we have a government um, and for as long as we have people in the nation with a vision, I imagine we will continue to sue every government and every administration. Um, you know, <laughs> shout out. Um, Mayor it, Pete, you gotta watch out. I know. You gotta watch out. No shade. No shade. It's all friendly. Um, we will, you know, step on constitutional rights, and we'll see you in court. That's that's how it rolls. Um, but I mean, I think that people know us for uh, progressive causes. But when you dig into it, you know, we've really fought for people to be able to express their religious freedom. For example, a lot of those cases were um, for people being able to express their religious beliefs, even when they were Christians, even though we're known for taking other cases. So I think I invite people to really dig into what we do, and you'll see that like it's the Constitution that unifies us. And as long as that represents every um, person in the nation, then so do we. Yeah, that, that's a very well put, and it, and it makes a lot of sense in terms of fighting for particular values. Um, one component to what this podcast tries to unpack is how a lot of those values and how American identity is evolving in real time. And it's not just because of one president or one administration. It's just this way in which that we always reflect on our identity in pursuit of a more perfect union. But we are here in Austin, Texas, which is often celebrated as a liberal, a liberal oasis, some reference it, um, in, in the state of Texas. Um, I'm from San Francisco, California. Um, you live in New York. Uh, Ravi lives in Los Angeles. Um, and ma yet ma Mayor Pete is from South Bend, Indiana, a very different place in many respects demographically, value-wise, um, voting outcomes-wise compared to the rest of those cities. So if we are always trying to pledge allegiance to one flag and we're always trying to fight for the values of the Constitution, um, how is it, Mayor Pete, that our cities um, as ethnic enclaves, as value-based enclaves, how can they continue to stand for what they want to believe in and what they want to stand for? Um, and yet, how can we ensure that cities can be in you know, hotbeds of our neighborhood and our communities while at the same time trying our best to minimize the division that city-to-city -city conflict or value-to-value -value conflict can potentially create over time? Well, I think the great thing about a city, especially in my part of the country in the industrial Midwest, is it really forces people of different values and different backgrounds to come together. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that the reason that cities are so economically productive is the chance encounters among diverse people that lead to collisions of ideas and spark uh, different ideas and different opportunities for the future. Um, the other great thing about being physically in contact with other people, um, as living in a city of any scale or size forces you to do, uh, is that you begin to understand that people are people and not just categories. Uh, I think what, what's really balkanizing our society right now is this idea that we can look at people as an other, as a category, and not as a human being. When you start understanding other people's experiences, when you start understanding our politics through the lens of personal lived experience, through the lens of story, through the lens of what's actually happening on the ground to real people, it's very different, and it's a lot harder to hate somebody from up close. Uh, we have a lot of experiences in South Bend that I think have, have scrambled some of the ideological battle lines that people want to draw around us, uh, either in Indiana where I live or around uh, places like San Francisco or, or in our virtual spheres where we tweet at people who uh, agree with us and, and 
and build up echo chambers. Uh, I'll give you a, a short example since the, the topic of your deportation came up. We had a guy named Roberto Beristain, uh, owned a restaurant in South Bend, had about 20 employees, uh, and was deported after living for 20 years in the area. He went to ICE. He was actually trying to get his green card, so he would check in with ICE every year. Only this year, when he went to check in with ICE, he never came back out of that building and was deported. And the people who were most upset about this that I met were largely very conservative people. Because what they saw was an individual who they knew was a hardworking, taxpaying guy who was torn apart from his family by federal agents. <laughs> so, you know, one thing about conservatives is they, they like small business, they don't love federal government, and they're really into family. And so this was very offensive to conservative values. Uh, but uh, a lot of these people had voted for President Trump expecting something a little bit different. Mm -hmm. And it might be easy to say, well, what did you expect? for somebody looking at this story from the left. But looking at this story as a mayor, what I see is different threads of solidarity that can be pulled together due to the fact that living in the same community gives all of us something in common, even if we have nothing in common besides the community itself. And in, in terms of that storyline, you know, another component of um, the, the values that you enumerated, you know, whether they're conservative or liberal or anything in between, there has been a pretty intense reflection at the city level about economic outcomes, right? Um, traditionally haves or haves nots, but in the last few years, I would maybe even argue over the arc of the Obama administration and currently in this administration, there's been a lot of conversation around economic distress in communities, uh, widening income gaps, um, n not a lot of hikes in pay or wages. Um, you actually uh, had m mounted an incredible campaign for the chairman of the Democratic Party in um, 2016, 2017, um, 17, sorry. Um, and you spoke uh, quite thoughtfully about that economic distress. Um, and yet, when we hear the president kind of barnstorming across the country now, he almost seems that he's at his best and can rile up a crowd when he speaks to social wedge issues, um, whether it's immigration, whether it's guns, whether it's um, just the differences between the base that he tends to fight for versus the base that maybe doesn't support him. So I'm curious, do you see either at the city level or when you are campaigning nationally for the chairmanship, um, chairpersonship, do you see the divisions that are, or what's fueling division in this country? Is it economic distress or is it just a, a difference in outlook um, from social values? Well, I think both these things are there and we, we can't use the economic anxiety to absolve uh, things like, in many cases, outright racism that I think we're seeing. But we also can't pretend that this has nothing to do with the economy. To me, it begins by asking yourself this question. Look at the 2016 election, which bore all the hallmarks of an economic anxiety election. And ask yourself how we can have an economic anxiety election when the numbers tell us we're at conditions of full employment. It means that there's more to the story than the numbers are telling you. And in the industrial Midwest where I'm from, but also a lot of other parts of the country, what you're seeing is there's a lot more to your experience with the economy than if you have a job. We talk about jobs like all that matters is whether you have one or whether you don't. Or maybe we get one layer more sophisticated and we, we talk about the wages and we recognize that some of the jobs that are coming in are not paying as well as the jobs that are going away. This is so much deeper than that though. Uh, you could uh, have a job for most of your life and then be told, well, we're going to retrain you for some other job that pays the same income for your level of education. But what we're not accounting for is identity. When somebody loses a job, especially somebody from a generation where uh, you your job 
was your source of community purpose and identity. Your identity is at risk. Your identity is in danger. And I think one of the generational challenges we have coming from a generation, uh, I, I think I just made the cut for millennial uh, generation <laughs> based on when I was born. You know, we're going to change careers more frequently than our parents change jobs. And that means we're going to have a completely different relationship to sources of identity that come from the workplace. And if we don't get on top of this as a society, there are going to be more cases of economic but deeper than economic anxiety that then wind up fueling a lot of social intolerance. It's not for nothing that uh, the, the most uh, kind of grievous cases of social harm and social unrest follow cases of economic anxiety. But that economic piece, there's a lot more to it than whether the GDP is going up or down. And, you know, Ravi, you know a little bit about changing jobs constantly um, as, as an actor. I do. Uh, as an it's actor. It's a great segue to me. Thank you. Great, great pivot. Great pivot. Um, yeah. you, you, uh, You've been fired many times, <laughs> right? You've had a lot of different jobs. I, I, this is all accurate, by the way. <laughs> It's an interesting time in America because at the same time that we can reflect on how nonprofits or institutions fighting for our values are up and active, um, at the same time cities and local governments can even serve as a rebuke to federal policy sometimes. Um, entertainment has been a cornerstone of, of this country for quite some time. It's, it's probably one of America's best exports um, in terms of how other countries want to emulate actors, uh, singers, musicians, creatives out here. And particularly in the last uh, you know, 18 months or so, um, late night, satire, movies, film, etc., TV have all been used as a way of reflecting on our times, maybe even adding a little catharsis in, in difficult moments. Um, and, I, I, and I'm curious because not just, I love your, your outlook, both in terms of being an entertainer on, on some of these conversations, uh, sorry, sorry, some of these pieces we've been talking about, but specifically to what Mayor Pete was saying, um, there's this sense of an American dream that we're all after, right? And whether that's pursuit, the dignity of having a job or the dignity of work, putting food on the table, um, and in many respects, the American dream could be seen as splintered right now. Um, it's, it's harder to to work hard and have a fair shake and see yourself grow over time or see your kids have a better uh, positive outcome from you. Um, but you are the son of immigrants. You are a brown man. You are an actor that has had several successes. You are now, every time I open up my Netflix you are constantly suggested as somebody that I should be viewing. Yeah, well, that's based on your, your patterns, uh, your viewing My patterns. algorithm. So, my algorithm. So There's I another think this brown is, guy? Yeah, I think Have this is going somewhere way more <laughs> disturbing, actually, so, so I, about I'm, you. I'm curious because that is a track that in many respects highlights the American dream. Um, mm -hmm. I, I don't think that your parents would have necessarily expected that outcome for, for their children. No, no, no. In fact, they preferred away. a different outcome. Yeah, yeah I'm sure they wish you were a doctor specifically. Lawyer. So yeah. is the American dream out of reach? No, I think it's being redefined, and I think that is part of even the answer to, to what you were saying, is that you know, ideology is not something that people necessarily had the choice to, to ask as many questions as they do today. Um, we now live in a time where there's more information than ever, and uh, therefore you know, everyone's asking questions about their own identity, and it's become increasingly nuanced. Even the two-party system itself is being disrupted right now because people don't like getting uh, their value systems in bundles because uh, in no other facet of life is that something that we have to do anymore. So um, I, think it, I think we're just at a time right now where because of what's happening 
in mainstream politics. We're seeing our country going through the closest thing we'll ever see to the Arab Spring in the superpower uh, you know, of the world. And so people are all of a sudden realizing that uh, you can't take what we have here for granted. People are getting scared. And so to that extent, we live in, I think, one of the most exciting times of our history because everyone is waking up. And in doing so, we're asking important questions about what matters to us. And it's not necessarily, it's, it's very much uh, all rooted on a human level and uh, we're all different. So it's hard to just decide kind of which team to play on because it doesn't work that way. Right. And, and it, yeah, go. And go I want to dig in on this a little bit just because we're on an American Enough Let's podcast. Let's dig in. And yeah. you just brought up the American dream. And I'm, I'm sort of looking across the panel and realizing that we all have a very different relationship to the American dream. So we often think of the American dream and download it wholesale that, like, if you work hard, you can come up. And we all kind of know that we have a different relationship to the return on working hard. So, mm. um, Mayor Pete, you you talked about, you know, your uh, social identity often is, you know, shaped by what by your job or what relationship you have. And as a black woman, I always take real great issue with the American dream because for lots of black women over time, we haven't had the opportunity to be able to get into the workforce, but rather have wanted to get wages on our return of our participation in the workforce. So our relationship to the American dream is not the same for all of us across across this, this panel. And I think we owe it to ourselves to sort of say that what we, we're in a moment now where we can sort of tease out what really is the American dream and how much of that is mythology, how much of that is reality, how much can we really, can each of us expect the same return on our political our, our political participation for a long time as like um, LGBTQ folks, we were silenced and not not really, you know. It, so I think it, it, it's really cross sectional. I think we owe it to ourselves to sort of say like, what is the American dream? How much of that is like mythology and sort of comic book narratives that have been exported as a part of um, like entertainment, and how much of that is actual reality, and how much access do we actually have? For to that, and I mean, I think that's obviously why the ACLU is fighting, is so that you know everybody has the same return on their political um, participation. But as we stand right now, it's it we don't. Yeah, but at risk of sounding old-fashioned, uh, I think the fact that not everybody has been able to have just or fair access to the American dream is not to the discredit of the American dream. The idea that people can uh, deservedly advance in life is what makes part a very important part of what makes America, America. Uh, you can't deny the ways in which people have been and continue to be excluded from that. But uh, calling into question the legitimacy of the dream, I think ultimately is a form of kind of admiring the problem. Uh, when what I hope we can do is use that at a moment when solidarity is so hard to come by. Um, to pull together people who have radically different experiences, values, sometimes uh, different political commitments, and knit them together into some common goal. Uh, goal. To me, the real problem with the American dream is that the place statistically to experience the American dream is Denmark. Uh, Canadians have more access to the American dream. Than if, you, if you define it through the simple metric of social mobility, you might sure. say that's reductive. But just that simple question, if you're born in the bottom quintile, what is your shot of getting to the top? And in many countries, uh, it has remarkably little bearing on your ability to get to the top. And for America, that's less and less true. And so the dream is, I think, so important, and it's a touchstone that we can use to then call into question all the ways we come up short to living up to that dream. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's not something worth aspiring to, because if we don't have that, if we're not building toward a country where being born in the bottom quintile has no bearing on whether you make it to the top, 
uh, I'm not sure how much we have left in common as Americans. And I think a lot of that, I mean, I would argue is being informed by um, the immigrant experience, right? Uh, talking about the fact that there is a beauty in, in people living in a common space with a marketplace of ideas, but bringing different ideas, different perspectives to the table is core to the American pursuit of a more perfect union. But with an immigrant overlay, um, which you know has been a force to be reckoned with in this country since its founding, um, you have even more of an infusion of different ideas and more of a different cut of what a dream means to one diaspora versus another diaspora. Um, and this couldn't be more exposed in our current conversation today, um, given that we have this sort of step back from the world stage under this current administration that is in many ways arguing that those other perspectives could eat at that dream, could eat at the opportunity that you have or I may have or another person may have to grab and grasp at opportunities. Um, and I, I kind of want to go back to, to Ravi on this because um, you had a remarkable um, a, a, you know, piece of work, body of work in Meet the Patels, and you actually explore through the lens of love and marriage and dating this kind of push and pull on what American identity looks like when you do have parents that journey from another country to the to ours. They they raise you here, and they want you to be imparted with the conventions and traditions and ideas and values that they grew up with. They try and impart that upon you, but you're growing up as an American. You have your own values, you have your own attitude, and your own approach. How do you go about, I guess I have two questions, how do you go about balancing that, those two perspectives? What did you learn from that experience? And now, as you see that you are pursuing your own uh, you know, immigrant Ameri like, um, American experience, and yet you have an entire sect of the, the country that maybe says that your parents should never have come here to begin with, and yet you go toe-to-toe -to -toe with your parents trying to make sure that you have the American experience, how does that square with you when you're just walking throughout the world day-to-day? Well, first of all, I think the country loves my family right now. Uh, <laughs> my parents have become pseudo-famous, and they, uh, my dad has become like an adorable kind of douchebaggy Bieber Indian guy. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Yeah. Actually, if you guys haven't yeah. seen it, Sarah Silverman has this in incredible yeah. show in which Ravi's parents was featured on recently, and his dad is the most adorable man in the world. I mean, they're very the lovable celebrities. Uh, so I think the country loves them too much yeah. to that end. <laughs> Fair. Um, you know, look, that, making that film was obviously, it's a documentary, so it's real story. It was, you know, the most introspective journey of my life. And I think in terms of kind of like lessons from that experience, to me it was just uh, how, to, how to approach conflict when with someone you love when you're so far apart. And I think obviously, uh, you know, we can extract from that kind of a way to approach uh, conflict with, you know, everyone here in the country. With my parents, for example, and this is something we put a lot of effort in, in telling the story with Meet the Patels, was we've seen a lot of storytelling about, you know, uh, generational differences and then basically the, the son or what, like, in, in Meet the Patels is about my parents trying to set me up with Indian girls and the expectations of me to marry Indian while I was, hiding a white girl from them. Um, <laughs> so usually when that story's told... <laughs> Quick so synopsis. That's a hot take. Yeah. So usually when that story's told, uh, usually the way it's written is eventually the Indian son basically tells his parents to go fuck themselves. They're, I was the first to say fuck. 
Yeah, you thank win. you. Yeah. Free speech. Uh, right. <laughs> basically tells the parents, look, this is America. I'm me. Get on board or like or we're done. That's essentially the big moment or the epiphany for our main character. And then eventually the parents will come back to them and go, you know what? We're sorry we respect you. Um, you know, we love you no matter who you are. And then they hug, and then uh, you know, and then you see like a little moment with all like the Indians and the white people in the same frame. Um, so what we wanted to do was the opposite of that. In even the way we told the story, it would have been very easy for us to uh, to paint the picture of like our parents being hilariously alien and different and. Um, ab having uh, absurd expectations on us. Instead, we're like, let's you know, paint them as much with a stroke of love because that's actually how we see them. We didn't, we don't. I don't see my parents as anything other than extremely intelligent and loving and wanting the same thing uh, for me. Just having a different idea on how to get there, and so. That's how we approached it in real life, and not only tell the story, but we were like, okay, well, why do you want my life to be this way? Why do you think this is the solution? Why do you think I have to marry a girl with the same last name as me? Some of those things, they moved on eventually. Um, uh, and, and so I think it's really about, like, in taking a familial approach to conflict, and accepting everyone's point of view. And eventually what you find is when you do that, that uh, you do find a great deal of commonality in the goal, um, even though you may, it may be a hard process to go through in the short term. There is a, a, I think this is a fascinating analogy of meet the Patels and where we're at in the nation. Um, there's a hilarious moment right after you tell your mom that you actually have a girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it see it it's amazing um and she doesn't talk to you and there's there's a point where you guys are in the car and she tells your sister like turn the camera off and your sister doesn't um so we get to see what happens and she's like not talking to you and you're sort of like mom's not talking to me and i feel like that's where we're at as a nation where she is pissed and like can't though she loves you you know she will always love you she's sort of like i can't even look at you right now like yeah. not participating she's talking shit with her other indian aunties she's like that guy's a that's exactly what's happening in our country and right I feel now like yeah. we're at that stalemate where yeah. we're like you know what i don't want to hear from the middle of the country right now like turn the cameras off and it, yeah. it is kind of fascinating like how do you yeah. get beyond that um, totally. and i wonder like how you broke that seal with your mom what that felt like when yeah. you were like but mom, you got to talk to me again. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because you're because at the end of the day, you're like, you know, I, I, I no matter what happens here, I want to be. We, let's be together. Well, my, my my biggest concern, though, about I think you're right. That's a beautiful analogy. My biggest concern, though, is we can't ignore that people that is that that community that's upsetting us right now, right? And in many respects, where we are as a country is because large swaths of our entire nation um, feel ignored. Uh, you know, actually, my, my buddy who's in the crowd, Hirsch, I remember talking to him right after the election, and he, one of his biggest reflections was, I feel like I don't even know my own countrymen and women. Um, and, and it's not for, like, the election outcome. Electorally, it played how it played, but it's because there were values represented on that campaign trail. There was a brashness in, the, in the, how those values were framed that jarred and stunned most of us. And yet, 63 million people... We're all for it, including a significant percentage of uh, the, the uh, female population in this country. And I guess I, I'm curious, I mean, Mayor Pete, you've had a tremendous track record pushing sort of progressive values, um, you know, within a redder state. 
Um, but really, this question for everybody, but starting for, with, with you, Mr. Mayor, how do we start creating those bridges, right? We're at South by Southwest, um, a hotbed of technology. I think last year, even the founder of AOL, Steve Case, uh, was here talking about a rise of the rest tour that the, the tech community, for example, needs to start building um, in the middle of the country, creating jobs there. Maybe that's one approach. We had Mark Zuckerberg famously, you know, barnstorm in his own way, living rooms across the country, trying to get in touch with who his user base was on Facebook. Um, you know, I might even think that the way to build bridges and, and get to know one another as countrymen and women is to just show up in different parts of the country and say, hey, wh why, why are you such a big fan of the Second Amendment? Or why do you believe that, that teachers should be armed? Or why do you believe that immigrants should experience this and not that? And I'm curious, like, is there a perfect way to create those bridges? And, and if not, how do we start doing so? Because I fear that if we ignore a big part of the community... You, you have the answer to this? Then, uh, yeah, I think... <laughs> yeah, I got it all figured out. It's a big moment for us. It's a big moment. No, but actually, I think you have part of the answer to it, right? I mean, that, that familial analogy is really important, right? Because that's the one... The family is the one place where there are people with uh, radically different values who you cannot ignore because you love them. And uh, so you, you will never get to the same place, uh, especially, uh, and this is especially true of the immigrant experience, where you are basically of a different nationality than your parent. Um, uh, that's my experience on, on my father's side. And uh, Where's um, your father from? Uh, from Malta. Uh, okay. As you can imagine, the Maltese-American vote is a huge force in, uh, <laughs> in American politics, uh, all seven of us. Um, uh, but, you know, you have to negotiate these things in a family. And that's how a country is supposed to work. And by the way, those family clashes can be ferocious, right? Um, and uh, if you, sometimes if you could walk away, you would. Sometimes people do because it's too hard to actually get across that. But that's, I think, the same kind of ethic that we got to take to the way we have these dialogues. It's never going to be easy. But uh, I do think, and by the way, here's what I don't think you do. I don't think you you go for this kind of mealy-mouthed, well, you're there and I'm here. Let's find the exact middle weighted average and we'll all just cluster around that. Um, I don't even think independents want to see that. You know, Ideological centrism is not the same thing as reaching out to independents. Right. And I think that's an important thing for people approaching politics right now to get their heads around. It is funny in, in, in the middle of the country because we've had uh, – uh, we, we just had a Comeback Cities tour of venture capitalists come through South Bend. Uh, I hosted Mark uh, Zuckerberg when he came to town. We, we have a lot of journalists coming now. And it's, it's funny to go from being – feeling totally ignored to now feeling like we're the subject of kind yeah. of fascination. Right. Uh, right. Like a Nat Geo like Studying the natives yeah, yeah. as they yeah. kind of come out. <laughs> Um, tell me, how do you how do you you know eat here? <laughs> same, way, same way you do, man. Uh, it's just cheaper. <laughs> it's just um, cheaper. So, uh, but at least there's that sense of outreach, and I do think sometimes it's as simple as just physically going somewhere or having an actual conversation, mm -hmm. an authentic one. I think the other thing to do is to try to find some. I mean, my experience, definitely in the military in particular, was if, if you have a group of people come together and work on something hard, um, there will be a kind of bond that forms that then you can transcend any of the things that divide people. Whereas if we come, you know, especially since we're, we're on a podcast that's themed around the question of identity, we've got to be really careful about, on one hand, being honest about the ways in which our identities shape us, and on the other hand, recognize the exclusionary power if we view ourselves as a bunch of identities uh, just encountering and colliding with a bunch of other identities. Because one reason I, I try not, I do it sometimes, but I try not to say sentences that begin with as a blank. 
um, because I, f I fear that I might be telling, I'm just saying to somebody, you don't know me. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many people who really do want to get to know each other, just don't know how. Um, that creating the spaces where we start a dialogue about something else, whatever it is, Game of Thrones, tacos, like whatever we can kind of rally around. Flour tortillas, uh, corn tortillas. Absolutely. We had, we had a great debate in the green room. Mexican food in general um, is kind of... It brings everybody <laughs> together. It's really force of the American dream. Yeah. Um, and, and then we can get into the politics of it. Right. Yeah. It, the, I, I would be remiss. I mean, we're, we're at South by Southwest, obviously celebrates film, comedy, um, but also the interactive component of this festival has celebrated technology and startups in a major way over the past several years. Um, when we talk about identity, a lot of companies now are playing a very interesting role when it comes to American identity. Um, put aside the, the Mitt Romney refrain about whether corporations are people too, but what you have seen in the last few years is what I would argue is the rise of the CEO statesman or stateswoman, statesperson. Um, you had Tim Cook from Apple go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the FBI when they wanted to unlock an iPhone and he stood for privacy. Uh, you had Salesforce's CEO, Mark Benioff, come out swinging about their climate and carbon footprint as a company when the Trump administration withdrew from the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, and, and even on the heels of the first executive order, the travel ban, um, you had tech company after tech company, you know, Lyft leaned into that, even my own employer, Postmates leaned into that by partnering with the ACLU. Um, you've probably witnessed from your perch at the ACLU this massive shift in engagement, right? To, to Mayor Pete's point, if more and more journalists and, and VCs are coming through South Bend, kind of curious like what's going on there, a lot of companies um, of all sizes and all stripes are approaching the ACLU saying, how can we get involved? How can we partner? Um, at the same time, though, to what the mayor mentioned, they're creating identities in their products to exert and express values. But many people who use those products who are just using a food delivery service on a lazy Sunday because they want that you know, bean burrito or they want that, that Taco Bell delivered, do they, they may not want to see what that delivery company says or cares about um, immigrants' rights or values, and there may be an interference in that. Curious from your perspective, how has the ACLU witnessed this rise in sort of corporate engagement around values and American identity? And have you ever seen that come to the, to the detriment of companies and engaging their customers? Or do you think it's a, a, a very intriguing and interesting and perhaps fun, foundationally American way to support business? Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question. I'm about to, I oversee all of our um, marketing and branding, so I'm about to brand geek out. Um, I think this is, is it's, some of it is a change in how brands see themselves over time. So it used to be that brands really stood to give, um, like, you know, old cigarette labels that, you know, brands that were pushing cigarettes just gave lots of information. Look at old ads, there's lots of copy, lots of information. Um, and then brands sort of shifted to be really brand neutral. Like, you can believe in X and you can believe in Y, you can still shop here. And I think brands now are starting to realize that they can no longer pay that price. They can no longer um, sort of play a Switzerland role to, to the, what's happening politically because a lot of us really demand that our brands have, you know, we've gone from corporate social responsibility to our identity um, and purchasing with our dollars. So I think that's a shift in how branding has shifted over time. 
Um, from to answer your question, though, um, from the ACLU's perspective, we saw even before the election, we saw in Indiana, for example, we saw how businesses really played a role in sort of the um, religious uh, refusals. We saw that in North Carolina when um, the NCAA came out against the uh, the uh, trans bathroom bills. So we were starting to see what this shift that I'm saying that brands realize they can no longer play a Switzerland role. That the consumers want to know that their values are being represented in the dollars that they spend. Um, and I think that surge really started to, after the election, we all started to realize, um, as humans and also as corporations started to realize they, can, they must internalize the price of democracy. That what is happening in politically is not value neutral. It's not value neutral on the lives of their consumers. It's not value neutral on the lives of people who work for them. And that people were really engaged in a democracy in a way that companies could no longer sit on the sides. And so we have been endeared by seeing lots of companies and being able to partner with companies and being able to realize that the companies, just like our government, are are part of our democracy. And I think all of us are starting to realize that democracy is, is not just a spectator sport, but it's an exercise that takes great practice. And I think companies are starting to see their role in this democracy as well. Yeah, and I mean, Ravi, you even have um, an effort on your own um, labeled This Bar Saves Lives, in which you're using a brand of a company specifically to, to combat um, impoverished communities and food hunger in certain communities. Why is it important as a business person from that perspective to kind of reflect what Ja was saying, to use the, the salesmanship of a brand to also account for a social impact issue? By the way, I'm just now realizing I was going to bring bars for everyone, but I forgot. Uh, it's like nice if Oprah plug. says, nice everyone plug. reach under your seat, <laughs> you nobody get gets a car. <laughs> just kidding, just a granola bar, not getting that either. Uh, so this Bar Saves Lives is a granola bar company for every bar that we sell. We donate a life-saving meal packet to a child in need. We're going to be in every Starbucks in a few weeks in the country. Mazel. Keep very an eye cool. out. Thank you very much. That's my manager, Priya. Say hello to her. Um, They're actually you know, quite you know, tasty. Uh, thank They're you. Actually thank you. Tasty. Here we go. Now this is taking off. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I think the best motivator is the bottom line. And uh, that's why CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, is becoming such a big deal in every company. It's because they know it's going to help them make money. And that's a great thing. Uh, in social enterprise, which is what we call this space where you know, Tom's and This Bar Saves Lives play, um, when you hit the sweet spot, the equilibrium, where this is a legitimate, profitable company that is going to continue buzzing along while also providing, hopefully, uh, greater and greater increments of social good, that equilibrium comes when the donation essentially functions as a marketing expense. And it speaks entirely to what you were saying, which is simply that uh, consumers, uh, because we live in the choosiest time of society, uh, consumers, and we have more products than ever before. CPG companies are popping up in because the, uh, the accessibility of um, just money and how much cheaper it is to start a company, how much easier it is. Uh, there's more and more companies popping up. So people can choose, have a lot more to choose from. And so the standards go up. It's, it's very exciting. Uh, to that extent, and and they're saying in uh, quite quite loudly, they're saying, "Hey, um, you need to stand for more than just um, extremely delicious granola." Right. Right. I, I, it's, it's delicious <laughs> in my mind. I can extremely. taste it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, I, I would have given them away to you guys, but you're not <laughs> going to get them. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's fascinating to me because all of this is based off of. 
um, an engagement and awareness, um, and in the words of you know Childish Gambino, a staying wokeness, right? That you need to be aware of the values and concerns around you, and you can pay, use your dollar, use your pocketbook to engage accordingly, support accordingly. Um, it's all rooted in the ubiquity of information. And I think in many respects, the fact that I know that I'm going to choose your granola company or I'm going to choose to take a ride with Lyft because they stand for certain values or so on and so forth is rooted in this common sense that I am aware of, of the broader political overtures of our time, that I am aware of a specific value that I stand for. And that's a level of awareness that I would argue, I don't know if this is fair, but I would argue hasn't really existed in this country before. We used to come off the heels, I mean, you know, just at the advent of, of uh, television in which news engagement and awareness was maybe a couple of broadcast news shows, um, you know, around 5, 6 p.m. in the evening. And that was sort of your hit. You got the morning paper and then you had a, a, a tale about, you know, a cat that was caught up in a tree and the fire department that saved it. That was sort of so the, many cats, so many cats, every, a lot every, of every trees. day, cats oh, and trees. But now we have obviously with with information coming at us in, in so many different directions a lot of information that we can digest and then use that to reflect our identity and our values but we were all born into value systems and now we're, we're we happen to be at a time in society where you get to you get to pick totally you get to yeah. pick you and it happen in politics and religion it's yeah, yeah and, and I, I you know jump in here mayor but i i guess the reason i wanted to talk about the information piece is this weekend the new york times had this fascinating um, essay that you should all check out um, the failing New York Times. Um, and it was about a gentleman who was legitimately aggrieved after the election outcome. Um, I don't really know the extent of his politics. I assume he wasn't a fan of the outcome. But he said, I'm going to disengage from information. So when the New York Times profiled him, he actually is not aware of the 34 departures from the White House. He's not aware of what happened to the students tragically at Stoneman Douglas High School. He's not aware of much. And he has found like an incredible catharsis from that lack of information and lack of engagement. Um, you, we might argue that's incredibly naive, but for him, it was a coping mechanism. And rightly or wrongly, I'm just curious, is the information overload, uh, overload like a unbearable sort of burden that American citizenship now has to invoke? Does it create a problem in terms of just working within echo chambers? Or is there a... a hell of an opportunity and moment in time for us as a country with all these streams of information coming at us in real time into our pockets. I think the challenge is that we we have access to more information than ever before, and that's great. But uh, it's also uh, less likely to be mediated or moderated, which means you have to really become sophisticated to figure out what's real or not. I mean, even for those of us who think of ourselves as sophisticated consumers, right, over time you develop intuition. Like, you or I, if we were leafing through a hard copy of the New York Times, would recognize pretty quickly the full-page ad that's taken out by a crazy you know, group uh, that resembles news, but you look at it for a half a second and you have the pattern recognition like, oh, this is just one of those full-page ads that people do to push some weird cause. Yeah. Um, on Twitter, we don't have that pattern recognition. Unless you really study it, it takes longer to figure out, oh, this is a bot, this is a real person, uh, this is a troll. We're still with the new media, I think, developing the kind of gut-level filter that would help us understand what to take seriously. Um, you add to that the fact that, that a lot of the, the channelization now does push us into, because it's just more psychologically comfortable to be in contact with, with stuff that, that resonates with what we agree with. And I think we have a real problem. Uh, the antidote to it for me is that on-the-ground experience. So um, 
for all the you know the palace intrigue and, and the coverage of what is hard to look away from, right? I mean, it's just a mesmerizing horror show. It's like all uh, <laughs> grotesque things. Part right. of the nature of the grotesque is you can't stop looking at right. it. Um, one of the nice things about being a mayor is that I got potholes, right? So I only have so much time to keep track of what Jared Kushner is doing because right. if I don't plow the snow and fill in the potholes, I'm an ex-mayor pretty quickly, right? right? And I'm hoping we can get some of that immediacy and that reality back from the local level uh, and the community level where I think we have to deal with things in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and try to have that kind of kind of seriousness come back to the state and the national level, which is going to be a very hard thing to do. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I mean, from that community-based level, right? It, it's interesting because uh, I feel now, um, having previously worked in the federal government, that states and cities are where a lot of the rubber is meeting the road in terms of policy experimentation or that identity crafting. Um, it, it, that community level has also played a very interesting role, I think, in sort of being a pushback to policies that they don't like, for example, right? So um, in terms of, we were talking earlier about immigration and, and deportation raids, uh, the mayor of Oakland, California, Libby Schaff, actually gave folks a heads up when ICE raids were coming. Um, and I, I'm curious what any of you all have seen um, in terms of your communities and what they, what they stand for. Uh, this moment in time of like the, the hyper level of the community organizing also being a rebuke to federal policies or engagement, is that a shift or is that sort of always been core to, to how cities have functioned and operated? I mean, maybe from the perch of the ACLU, you've seen partnership and engagement at different levels, but I'm just curious if that evolution is playing out in a different way right now. Yeah, I mean, I think on the one hand, um, we've always had one badass person who has served as our client who has the audacity to, to dream or, or to, to sort of vision a different world, whether, you know, you think about the Lovings who had the audacity to, to love in a time when interracial marriage was, was illegal. So I think that's core to the nature of the ACLU. And I can't say that that's new, because um, we're 98 years old, so it, it's been at least 98 years old happening. Um, but I do think that we, what you're, you're hitting on is something really interesting in, in that <clears throat> sort of the 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 mass the what I described about how we're starting to understand our own democracy. So you know, um, at the ACLU, we've launched a grassroots mobilization platform, People Power, where people can sort of figure out what's happening in their state, where they want to get involved. I think we saw this at the town halls um, in the effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act, where there were people, you know, veins throbbing, yelling at their their um, representatives, right. and representatives kind of like, eh, why did I come here? <laughs> like, how do I get out? So I do think that there's this momentum, um, both at the local level and at the state level, where folks are really, you know, trying, taking the helm back. Um, I don't think it's necessarily new, but this, you know, this is, to your point, this is the closest we've gotten to the Arab Spring, um, and I think that's really inspiring. I see that with the hashtag #MeToo movement. I see that with the hashtag Never Again, where I'm just like, this, you know, it's it's easy to sort of despair. I think about how I felt emotionally November 9th, um, and this now where we're at is really a, a fly in the face of that. I see us uprising in, in lots of different ways and getting engaged in democracy in a way that's really inspiring. By the way, the greatest benefit to disconnecting from the news, which I do with some frequency for weeks at a time, is that it allows you to calm down right. and you step out of the details. It gives you perspective. And when you have perspective and you're not full of anxiety, you're allowed to engage in a much more uh, thoughtful way. And I mean, picking, pulling that thread, I mean, we've, we've seen maybe for, for 
quite some time, community level engagement around social issues. We're now seeing it at a heightened level. Um, you know, speaking of the the Me Too movement, I mean, the entertainment industry has long used their bully pulpit for various causes. I mean, um, for every Matt Damon and, you know, access to clean water, for every Leonardo DiCaprio and climate change campaign, there are folks that are using their unique voice and their audience um, to do something meaningful. I'm curious, as an entertainer, do you feel an is there an extra obligation to not just be an actor, but to be someone that is also a, a social cause warrior? Or do you think that's organic? I mean, obviously, earlier, we were talking about, you know, sometimes it's just good business. But 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 right now, I mean, it, it feels like there's a hell of a moment in American history in which Seth Meyers, Stephen Colbert, SNL, they're all using their perches to to reflect on our times. And I'm, I'm curious how you see the value in that. And, and almost is there a mandate in your work or in your industry to do that? Well, obviously, it's awesome just that it's like a hip thing to do yeah. in and of itself. I think it's so exciting all the work that people in entertaining entertainment are doing, even if you disagree with what they're doing, the fact that they're engaging makes other people want to engage. So that's really exciting. For me, I don't really feel so much of a responsibility um, to do good things as much as I'm just compelled to because uh, selfishly, it just, it, it, it makes me ha happy. I mean, I think uh, fame is not, is really only interesting when it, provides you cool experiences right so you get to go to cool parties you get to meet interesting people but you also get to affect people's lives hopefully in in a cool way so for me that's the motivation and um you know i think by the way the downside of what you're talking about is the kind of the narcissism that comes with advocacy and you know i live in the bubble and what you see all the time right now and this is kind of the tough line to walk is people getting advocacy mixed up with their identities almost or their brands. Mm -hmm. And it's ironically, at least with a lot of liberals, what I see is I know so many liberals who spend night and day reading news, posting tweets, going to some sort of a rally, just hardcore professional advocacy. But when you meet them in person, they're assholes. And they forget... <laughs> They and they love telling people in the uh, everyone in the country how terrible they are as people, and they forget that the most liberal virtue is kindness, and that's the that's the virtue that unites all of us that you're talking about. So that to me is the risk mm. of this whole movement, mm. and uh, it, it makes me really sad. I mean, I know these people, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and you mean that they're not necessarily um, practicing the values that they're they're posting about. Yeah, I think it's them dealing with their own narcissistic complexes a yeah. lot of times. Yeah, and yeah. at the same time, this is how I feel like uh, like some Republicans might feel about white supremacists. This analogy <laughs> cannot go well. Um, uh, Where are you gonna it's go? Like, it's How's like some of them out? are like, I'm glad those guys are on my team, but they're assholes, right? <laughs> uh, that's how I feel sometimes about some of these about about some of these celebrities when they go to, I was like, I'm so proud of so much of the work they do. But then there's this extra step because it's so easy to yell and scream and, and to get everyone on your team to cheer for you. But what's really hard is sitting down with the people you disagree with and, and treating them like family. Yeah. I, it's, uh, it's a really good point because I think that there is a, 
a sense of, um, in an almost perverse way, you know, I think it may have been our, our friends at, at Pod Save America. I forgot where the line came from, but it, it said protest is the new brunch, right? Where it's almost like the, the thing du jour to do um, <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a Sunday now. Instead of bottomless mimosas, you get a sign and you go out there. Um, but it, 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 it sounds awful. By the way. <laughs> It, it, Brunches it, was perfect the way it was. Right. was great. <laughs> uh, you, you, it, it's just an interesting time because you have way more activated, way more activated user base of the country, right? And even on the heels of the inauguration of this country, um, an incredible, incredible set of marches, not just in the United States but around the world, the Women's March, um, that stood for a number of things. But in many ways, if you ask an attendee there why they were there, it stood for many things, right? It wasn't just about, say, reproductive rights, or it wasn't just as a reflection on the presidential outcome. It was a reflection on what they were fighting for, and kind of goes back to the mayor's earlier point of how we have these disparate identities, and sometimes there's magic that can be made from that, and other times we can just be um, various protons colliding with one another. Um, I, I, I think that for this audience also might be random to have a mayor, to have an actor, to have an ACLU advocate on stage. But the reason that we wanted to curate this specific uh, conversation is because when it comes to American identity, um, it's very clear that whether you are an entertainer, whether you are activating and fighting for our constitution, whether you are filling potholes, there are different roles. Personally filling the just, potholes. Just to quickly if reduce your, your job description to that. Um, <laughs> there, there are different roles that that we all play in informing our collective identity. And it's incredible what each one of us can do with our perches, whether we're using it to be lofty and vocal about the direction of our country, or just using it to, to chart the course of what our mandate is day to day based off of just how we see ourselves as humans here. There's a really impactful way that each of you all can shape the American discourse and the, the path of this country. And I guess I, I kind of wanna start concluding by asking, each of you, you know, um, you, as you mentioned, are the, the daughter of biracial uh, parents, um, a, a, you know, a fast advocate for many things, but including the LGBTQ community. Ravi, you have an incredible body of work, and you've been using that work recently to reflect on some very interesting elements of our time, whether it's on, you know, pressing social challenges or just dealing with families in the immigrant diaspora. And Mayor Pete, you have an incredibly thoughtful way of talking about how we don't necessarily have to value freedom in this country just from the government, but that we're free to be in our own distinct ways. And I guess from your own perches, um, what does it mean to be an American right now? Kick us off, Ravi. <laughs> That got really Reddit. tough, like in the last <laughs> half second, right? Yeah, it's, it's a First of all, I just want to say I, I'm hangry. If there were granola bars <laughs> here, it would be a little easier. Wow. First of all, I love hearing you speak. I just want to tell you that. I think you're extremely thoughtful and eloquent. So yeah. thank you for having me here yeah, yeah, yeah. in this conversation. Uh, what, does it be, what does it mean to be American? Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, do you have an answer here? Maybe I can jump off of what you say. This is I mean, like what you do for a living, right? Uh, you know, usually I don't get questions that profound at city council meetings. <laughs> this but, is not I mean, going well. Just yes and whatever you do. I will say this. Then... I mean, again, I always think by analogy to the local experience because that's what I'm what I'm swimming around in. But uh, 
we're such a diverse and complex community that often the the way I really hold the community together is is just by appealing to the idea of community itself. So I have people who have different values, different uh, orientations. Sometimes they're at each other's throats, but we all care about South Bend, the city that we're in. And we're all part of the story of the city coming back from the edge economically and making a new future for itself. So, you know, to me, American identity, and I, I really do think there's a chance to uh, reimagine American exceptionalism from not exceptionalism in the sense that like we don't have to play by the rules everybody else does, but exceptionalism in the sense of recognizing that there is something special about a country whose whose basis is a creed, not an ethno-national complex. Um, you, you couldn't have a a political idea that would make you un-Japanese, but but that is true for America. There are certain things that we believe together that what, that's what makes us American. Mm-hmm. And so I guess for me, being American is having something in common with everybody else in this country, even if being American is literally the only thing I have in common with them. And, and that's where you begin to knit together the kind of solidarity we're going to need to, to make it in, in the years that, that, are, uh, that are facing us down. Ja? Um, I love this question because I have a really complicated relationship with being American. And, as, yeah, and I really um, enjoy our, um, what we discussed about the American dream. And I think for me, what it means to be American right now, I mean, what really brings me to work at an American institution like the American Civil Liberties Union is this radical um, audacity um, to believe in change. Um, and, and some part of it is it's deep in my DNA, the way you teed up the question, that I have to be optimistic because I exist. Like I am the children of ancestors that would not die. My parents had the nerve to believe in their love at a time when the nation was saying it was illegal. I had the nerve to bring back lovers of all stripes where my pops was like, oh, I didn't envision all this. I don't know what that, uh, that's queer. And I was like, it is. Um, <laughs> lovely. <laughs> but I do think that for me, what it means to be American is this um, radical idea in the arc of history that the belief that uh, truth, equality, democracy, justice will long outlive hate and and shame and and differences and divide. And there are some days where that's it's hard for me to access that that feeling. But over the long, that's really what I, I truly and that's what our our nation has sort of shown us. And that's how I'm here. That's how I'm on this stage with all of you. That's, you know, this is really humbling for us to be, to be here discussing this and unpacking that. And that's really what I think it means to be American, this notion that while we don't have a perfect union, the union can be perfected. And it takes an audacity to believe in that. And that's the audacity that brings us together. Yeah, I mean, that, by the way, that, that really worked with both of you speaking before me. <laughs> Got a lot of good ideas. I'm feeling quite inspired. Uh, yeah, you know, my father's story is, you know, he, he grew up in this rural village in India, and his dad had to borrow money from the entire village just to get his plane ticket to this country. A lot of Indian Americans have this story. And he was the top of his class, and as soon as he got here, and as soon as he made enough money to pay the village back, he sent the money back. And then once they were fair, the next phase was bringing the whole village here. So all of their siblings... Uh, all of their siblings, uh, friends, the entire village. I mean, my house growing up was like an immigrant halfway house. <laughs> and all these people, was that what we were talking about? I was like, all these Indians, I don't know that I'm supposed to treat like my brother and sister are in my bedroom playing with my toys. And I'm doing things for them. And that is how I was raised. And my family now is, you know, now they're in a place where 
they're not just making a living, but they're they're retired and doing well. So now they spend all their time doing uh, charity work and community organizing. Yeah. They're giving back domestically here in the country and also finding ways to uh, give back at, at home at the same time. And, uh, and we do that together now as a family. So to me, the American dream, and this speaks to what you said, in a way I'm kind of ripping off what you guys said, but putting my own personal spin on nice. it, nice. Um, which is something you learn to do as an actor. <laughs> But it's, it's having the opportunity to, it's being in a position uh, to, to do better, not only for yourself and for others. Yep. And, and I'll, I'll say just from my own perspective, I, I feel that also as the son of immigrants, as someone that's had the chance, it, it's a hell of a thing when your parents step off a plane in JFK um, and, you know, have a few dollars to their pocket and pursue, pursue a life here in this country. And then a few years later, or a couple of decades later, you can take your parents, you know, one dressed in a sari, the other with the notes on is scribbled on a piece of paper to meet the president of the United States. I think it's a, it's an incredible feeling for you. Um, but also I will say I have made mistakes along the way with the purchase and the opportunities that I have had. And I've aggrieved folks in certain ways. And to those that might be listening to this, I apologize to them. And I think in many respects, American identity is knowing that it's about fits and starts. It's about pursuing that more perfect union, but knowing that there are teachable moments and regrettable ones. And for however you see this country right now, whether you see it as a series of, of, of a car crash in slow motion, or if you see it as an immense opportunity, I think there's a collective, there can be a collective will to grow as a community, as a country, as a nation. And we can do that at cities, we can do that in entertainment, we can do it by fighting for what's right and what's embedded in our constitution. So, Mayor Pete, Thank you so much for being here. Ravi Patel, thank you so much for being here. Ja Brown with the ACLU, thank you so much for being here. Let's give everybody a big round of applause. Thank you. Thank you, Austin. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. The superior audio quality on Mouth Media Network is powered by Sennheiser. And as a listener, you can receive a 25% discount on virtually any headphone, microphone, and other high-quality audio product available to purchase directly on the Sennheiser website. Just visit Sennheiser.com and enter the code MOUTHMEDIASEN, that's MOUTHMEDIA, S-E-N-N, at checkout. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.